the privileges I get as a, as a pastor as I get the chance to meet with people. And one of the things I always want to do is I want to meet somebody and I'm going to say, hey, tell me, tell me a little bit about yourself. All right? Now, put yourself in a situation. You meet somebody different. They say, tell me about yourself. How do you answer that? How do you answer that? Tell me a little, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm, 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 a, I'm a parent. I'm, I'm a spouse. I'm whatever it happens to be. Oftentimes, when we're asked that question, we want to try and present ourselves um, maybe, uh, maybe how we really are, but maybe more realistically, we want to present ourselves in a way that people are like, wow, you're cool. We present ourselves in, in a positive light, how we want people to think uh, we are. Really, this comes down to this question of identity. In fact, if you were in psychology, they would say, what is your self-image? What does your self-esteem say about you? Who are you? We're going to have this conversation about identity, and as we talk, start talking about identity, identity is a significant issue because your identity determines your destiny. Okay, when you establish and understand what your identity is, it determines your destiny because what you think you are, it determines uh, the way that you live. Once you determine who you are, who you're going to be, your identity, it determines what decisions you're going to say yes to, what decisions you're going to say no to. It determines how you live. For example... I grew up and we didn't have much money growing up. Uh, we, were, we, were, we weren't poor, we were just po. Like we couldn't afford the rest of the word. We were po. And so what happened is I grew older and I found myself like I'm still cheap. I still have this idea that, and I'm not rich by any means, but like I still know the cheapest place to go and have lunch. Because that's just the way, and we just didn't have a lot of money. So we're going to go out, we're going to be wise with our resources. So Costco, $1.50 hot dog, the best meal you can get. And I'm good with a $1.50 McChicken. Like some of you, you want something better than that? $1.50 McChicken, you can't beat that. Why is that? I think it comes down to part of this identity, this idea that I have ingrained in me from when I was born. See, oftentimes, our identity is something that is, 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 comes from the culture around us. People begin to speak into our identity. So, example, when you're a little kid, when you're a baby, you know, you've got all these aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas, and and they they say these things towards the baby. They say, oh, look, this is a cute one. And so what does that child grow up thinking? I'm cute. Oh, this is, this is the funny one. This is the smart one. And so these, these things that we speak towards our little kids, they, they, they impact their identity and affects them as they grow up. Then you grow up and you get into school age. You get to middle school and high school age. And that can be an awkward time, can it not? And in in those middle school ages, high school ages, what happens is your identity, you get put into a group of people. I know all these teenagers say, oh, I want to be unique and different just like everybody else, right? And so in in, in that age, you get put in these groups. You've got uh, got, uh, the jocks over here. You've got the artists. You've got the creative people. You've got the smart kids. Uh, You've got the skaters. You've got the smokers. Like every school has a group of smokers. That was uh, my school. Not that I ever hung out there. But they were on on 42nd Avenue across from the high school. That's where they hung out. Okay? They're in those groups. And what happens is even as you get into adulthood, again, our culture has some sort of impact on our identity. And so our identity based on what the culture says. So your identity is based on the job that you have, the relationship status that you have, whether you are married or single or divorced or whatever, the house you drive, the car, no, the house you live in and the car you drive and the kids that you have or the kids that you don't have. 
And so your identity gets pushed by all these different things. And it's no wonder that many of us, we really struggle with knowing who we really are. We struggle knowing who our real identity is. In fact, I would say that oftentimes we become conflicted. Or we just don't quite understand who I am and what I'm about. Because there's all these voices around us telling us, this is how you define yourself. I'm going to lean in today. We're going to be in Esther chapter 5. I want to lean in on this idea of identity. Because it is significant to our faith. It's significant to our life. And so we're going to look in Esther chapter 5. We're going to look at two people. We're going to look at the hero of the story, Esther. Actually, the hero of the story is God. But we're going to look at the heroine of the story, Esther. And we're going to look at the villain of the story, uh, Haman. And we're going to see how their identity, how they viewed themselves, how that affects the choices they make, how that affects how they live their life, and, and what impact that has on their future. So, uh, just a little bit of a recap. If you remember where we left off last week, uh, we came to one of these defining moments. Remember the story of Esther? Esther was, uh, uh, um, she was the queen to King Xerxes, who happened to, be, happened to be the most powerful man in the entire world in that day and age. He was the wealthiest, most powerful uh, king of the greatest empire of the, of the world, and, and wanted a new queen, and so he did a, a competition, and uh, remember the story of Esther, she has a one-night stand with a king, she impresses the king more than any other girl they had a one-night stand with, and she becomes the new queen. That's the way that story played out. And five years after they get married, the relationship has cooled a little bit. We saw last week that it has actually been 30 days since the king actually had the queen in front of his presence, and so there's things going on. We also know in this story that Esther was orphaned as a young child, and so she was raised by her cousin Mordecai. And Mordecai, if you remember the story, he had an issue with, with, with King Xerxes' number two guy, Haman. Uh, King Xerxes wanted to, to bring Haman in, said, Haman, you're, you're the vice president of the entire nation. And what I want to do to make sure everybody honors you is I want everyone to bow before you. And everybody bows except for Mordecai. Mordecai's like, I'm not going to bow before this guy. And so Haman gets enraged, and what does Haman do? He goes and tells the king, hey, here's what we need to do. There's a group of people who don't obey you. You need to have them all killed. And so Haman convinces the king to create a genocide where they're going to kill 15 million Jews throughout the entire uh, world at that day and that age. And, and this is where we pick up, where Mordecai last week said, hey, what are we going to do? This is a horrible thing that's going to happen. I know. Cousin Esther. She's one of God's people. She may not be living for God, but she's one of God's people, and she's also in the king's court. She is the perfect person to be a mediator, a mediator between God's people and the king to say, hey, king, you need to reverse course. And, and Esther was filled with fear, and that's where we came to that defining moment. She had a choice to make. If you remember the end of chapter 4, Esther says, listen, Mordecai, I want you to gather all the Jews I want you to have everybody fast for me for three days. A fast was just a, simp a simple way of, of denying yourself, of identifying and putting yourself in a place of weakness and dependency. It's kind of one of those ideas that before you go and do anything big, before you make a big decision, you want to uh, fast and kind of deny yourself so you remember that you are in complete dependence upon God, on his wisdom. So Esther says, I want everybody to fast for me, and here's what's going to happen. I am going to identify myself as one of God's people. And I'm going to go before the king. And if I die, I die. 
And that's where chapter 5 picks up. Picks up and it says, the third day, uh, this means after the feast, it means, uh, or after the fast. They've had three days of fasting. And on the third day, uh, it says that she gets all dressed up. She gets dolled up. She's going to go in front of the king's throne room. She's going to stand at the doorway and kind of wait to see if she is noticed. Now, again, we've got to understand the context. If we remember what our Bible history that we've talked about, Persian law said that no one was allowed to come before the king unless they were invited. And if they come before the king and they aren't invited, it's a death sentence. In fact, history shows that there is uh, validation to this trepidation that Esther would have had. Because there's some archaeological evidence that they've found these carvings and these paintings. of You've got the king on the throne and he's holding his golden scepter. And behind the king is a soldier with a large axe. The axe is not for cutting wood. The axe is for the purpose of exactly what we're talking about. Okay, so here's Esther. She's dressed up. She's standing in the doorway to the king's throne room. And you can, I want you to feel the tension of what's happening here. All, everybody that would have been around, they would have been saying, man, why is she here? This is unusual. She's not supposed to be here. She's uninvited. In verse 2, verse 2, it says that the king saw Esther standing in the doorway. And she won his favor. He extends the golden scepter out, and she comes and touches it. This is kind of, uh, again, this is back in their day and age. This was, uh, uh, let me find my wording here. This is royal protocol. If the king extended the scepter, uh, that was an invitation. You're welcome to come in. So she comes in. She touches the scepter. And I want to, uh, in your Bible next to verse 2, I want you to, to write in the margin. I want you to write Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. Because again here, we're reading this story about this king who's got this horrible law that says, if you come before me uninvited, you will be put to death. But Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. See, I think this is going to speak to someone in here today. This idea that, that there's no king who will uh, intimidate God. There's no king who has ever intimidated God. In fact, when you look at the sovereignty of God, that God can, can work through King Xerxes to give him a favorable uh, admission to Esther, to allow her to come in. Listen, God can handle anyone. I mean, what does that mean for you? That it's hope for us. God can handle anyone. Listen, you've got a frustrating relationship. You've got a difficult spouse. You've got kids who are driving you crazy. You've got a person who gives you grief. You've got an ex-spouse that is just, just drives you crazy. You've got that person who's made all sorts of promises to you and broken most of them. Listen, I want you to hear. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Listen, God can handle the most difficult situation. God can handle the most difficult person. As you look at that difficulty in your life, I want you to take hope from the fact that God can change the king's heart. And God can, can allow the king to, can, can force the king to allow Esther into his presence. God can do the remarkable. So verse 3, verse 3, Esther comes before the king and the king says, hey, what is it you want? Like you've, you've broken protocol, you've come to see me, what is your request? He says, I will give you whatever you want up to half of my kingdom. Now, I don't think that's a real offer. I think that was uh, more of a figure of speech. Kind of the way of saying, hey, the king likes you. The king wants to be gracious to you. In fact, there's another occasion in your Bible 
in Mark chapter 6, where another, uh, for another king said, hey, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. In the story of Mark chapter 6, there's a, a young girl who was very seductive. She said, well, king, I don't want half of your kingdom. I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So this is a common statement that would have been made amongst ancient kings of that day and age. And so king says, Esther, what is it you want? What is your request? Let me know and I'll fulfill it. In verse 4, this is what she says. She says, if it pleases the king, I want you to notice the way that she is talking to him. She says, if it pleases the king, notice how respectful she is. I mean, she is, she's courageous, she's gone before the king, she's being bold, she's making her request, but she's very respectful. Again, she got dressed up, she looked nice, she waited to be called in, she's polite, she's honoring with her words. I mean, we know that King Xerxes, he's, he's not a very good guy. And we can picture, uh, man, a wife, she could come in and she could yell at him, she could nag at him, she could, she could put her hands on her hip and kind of do the, the, the chicken neck thing, you know? Whatever those ladies do, you know? Do the neck thing, you know? Let me tell you something. You know what I'm talking about, right, guys? Maybe I didn't do it very good. I don't have the neck muscles for it, but you know what I'm talking about. See, there's something that can be said for us learning about what it looks like to be under authority. There's something that we can learn from this about what it means for us to be under authority, but still be able to approach with issues. This is something on, on, on how we engage uh, the authority above us. If you are a, a, a young person, listen, you have a responsibility to honor your parents. If you are an employee, you have a responsibility to honor your employer. If you are a citizen, you have a responsibility to honor your government leader. I think Esther's example is a good example on what it looks like for us to honor someone who's in authority that may not deserve the respect that we think that, that, that they're their title holds. There's something to be said about the way she goes about approaching the king. So she says, listen, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman, your vice president, why don't you guys come to a feast that I have prepared? Now, I look at that verse, I look at her request, and I'm a little bit surprised. Anybody else surprised? Because I'm like, listen, remember Esther, there's 15 million people that are going to die. And your request is, why don't you come to dinner? I'm kind of like, shouldn't you be asking him about the people that are going to die? But this is something I want you to, to, to grasp. <clears throat> some of you, some of us, when there's something really important going on, when there's a big decision, there's something exciting, we, we sometimes we emotionally get ahead of our circumstances, right? We emotionally get ahead of our circumstances and we make things worse. Where when there's this potential, there's this thing going on, we get excited and we talk about things a little bit too early. We start talking about things before we've gathered all of our thoughts, before we, we know our plan. I saw one pastor refer to this as, we, we leak and we freak. Listen, just because, God doesn't op just because God opens a door, doesn't mean we can run right in and start shouting things and getting things out. This is an example of what Esther's doing. In fact, I had a, a, a pastor, and one of the prayers he used to pray for the church, and I remember this because he would pray this on a regular basis. He would pray and say, God, help us not to run ahead of you. And help us not to fall behind you. Because it's possible for us, when we get excited, to run out ahead of God and find ourselves in a precarious 
position because we've gone ahead of him. And here's Esther. She spent three days fasting before God. She spent three days to be dependent on God, in tune with God. She's, she's waiting on God. And it's kind of like this, where, where when you are in tune with the Spirit, it's kind of like, like there's a glove on your hand. God's inside, he's the hand, and we're the glove, and he's moving us the way he wants. And so Esther, she realizes, hey, I don't want to run ahead of God. It's not time yet. God's given her another plan. So she says, hey, King and Haman, I want you to come over for my house for dinner. I've got a banquet. And again, if we know anything about King Xerxes, man, banquets are his thing, right? Like, he, he loves a good party, he loves a good dinner, dinner meal, dinner group, whatever you want to call it. And so verse 5 and 6, it says, the king and Haman, they show up for dinner. I imagine it was brisket. Why is it brisket? Because I want to learn how to make brisket. So I'm just thinking about brisket. So they're probably having brisket. And after dinner, verse 6, it says they're, they're sitting back over a glass of wine. And the king goes back to that question he asked earlier. He realizes, hey, Esther, no one comes before me. No one risks their life to make me dinner. So Esther, what is it you want? What is your request? Let me know, and I will fulfill it. Like, this is the time. She's going to say, now, I'm, I'm going to have you save the lives of those 15 million people. But that's not what she says. Verse 7, she says, listen, king, hey, man, I want you to come to dinner tomorrow. And, and tomorrow, when you come to dinner, then I will reveal my request. You know what Esther's doing? You know, I, I think about this. I think about, how do you, how do you tell someone's a Christian? Well, it's their bumper sticker, it's uh, the shirt they wear, it's, it's whatever these things. In fact, Galatians chapter 5 says this is how you tell someone is a Christian. There's these things called the fruit of the Spirit. These character qualities. These character qualities, Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Do you hear that word patience? This is one of the evidences of faith is that we have these characteristics that begin to define us we're not perfect but they're growing in us and i see esther again i look at these love joy peace patience i see esther beginning to show some of the fruit of the spirit in her life i mean if, remember here's what we know about esther esther is a girl who's lived a life of compromise she's one of those people who, who claim to be one of god's people who claim to be a christian but when you look at her life there's just not much evidence that she loves God. There's not much evidence that she is following after God. And she came to this defining moment. She came to this defining moment put in front of her by Mordecai. And she makes a decision that she will identify as one of God's people. She makes a decision, I'm going to stand for the people of God. I'm going to claim uh, and I'm going to put my actions towards what I claim to believe in. And really, I think in chapter 5, you begin to see Esther really uh, starting to own her faith, right? She's not just thinking about herself. She's thinking about other people. We see her active. We don't see her being silent. We see her, we see her talking. Uh, we see her taking a risk. That is, a, a, that is faith. That is faith in action is when we take a risk. We don't see her cowering in fear. And what has happened in Esther What's happened in Esther, the difference between Esther, chapter 5, the rest of the story, and, and before in chapter 4, is Esther now has a new identity. She has a new identity. She's no longer this conflicted person where she's trying to 
figure out, do I belong with God's people or do I belong in, in Persian, uh, Persian royalty? She has a new identity and she has planted her feet as a follower of God. She has said, I am a child of God and that is my identity. In fact, it's that identity of being a child of God that gives her the courage, that gives her the strength to go and, and risk her life in front of the king. To say, hey king, I'm going to come before you. I'm not supposed to. I might die. But it's that, it's that identity of being a child of God that gives her the courage to approach the king and say, hey, come for dinner. Come for dinner again. Uh, then I will make my request known. What we're going to see is we're going to see she's still a Persian queen. She, is a, she has a new identity as a child of God, as a follower of God, but she's still a Persian queen. Because that explains her. That doesn't define her anymore. This is one of those things when we start talking about identity. Uh, it's so important. Because oftentimes what we, what we say is we say, well, things that happen to me, that's my identity. So for me, I grew up kind of without much money. And so I would say my identity is related to that. I grew up and I was adopted. Uh, my father died when I was young. And so I have all these things that happen to me, and I allow those things to influence my identity. But what happens in the gospel is, is, is uh, the things that happen to you, they don't define you. They might explain you, but they don't define you. Let me, let, let me just flesh this out with, for you for a second. Esther, her parents died. She's an orphan. At this point, that explains her situation, but that does not define her. She spent, she had a one-night stand with a king. She became the queen of Persia. Again, this explains her, but it doesn't define her. But being the queen of Persia, that explains her, it doesn't define her because her identity has changed. What are the things that you've allowed in your life to define you? The difficult circumstances put in your plate. The divorce, the addiction, the abuse. How many of us have allowed those things to define us? Listen, they don't define you. I need you to hear that today. Those things that have happened to you, they do not define you. They explain you, but they do not define you. You know what defines you? God. God defines you. When we have an identity that is not centered in being a child of God, then what we have to do is, is, is our identity must be something that is achieved. It's something that we do. It's something that we earn. And so what we do is we begin to work really hard at being really beautiful or being successful or having a big income or having a good GPA or, or our dating relationship or our marital status, our athletic performance, our, our, our parental approval, the clothes we wear, the car we drive, the house we live in. We do all these things because we are trying to earn our identity. We're trying to achieve an identity. And our identity is based on what we do. But that's not accurate because when you are one of God's people listen your identity is not achieved it is received when you are one of God's children your identity is not something that you achieve it is something that is received that as a child of God you are loved unconditionally as a child of God you are forgiven as a child of God, you are cared for. You are blessed. You have found favor in the sight of God. Listen, you don't have to impress anybody. You don't have to impress God. You don't have to impress Jesus because Jesus has done the work for you. He has proven his love for you on the cross. 
You don't have to earn it. You don't have to achieve it. It is given to you, and all you have to do is receive his grace and his love and his identity as a child of his. Example of this. If you've ever had a newborn baby, we've had five of them. We've got some experience with those newborn babies. Listen, that newborn baby, (laughs) it's amazing. That baby, the moment they're there, they're loved. They're cherished. The child hasn't performed. That child hasn't accomplished anything. They haven't impressed me. They, all they do is poop and cry. They haven't done anything worthy of esteem. Yet they are loved. They are cared for. They are part of our family. That is what it means to be a child of God. That your identity is secure. That you don't work for your identity, you actually work from your identity. Listen, this is such a foundational thing for us to understand. So often we miss it. That if you are a Christian, you have a new identity. That you don't live for that identity. Listen, the world tells us we live for an identity. The world, uh, you you look at the way that marketing and, and advertising does. It pressures us to compete. It pressures us to purchase so we can produce an identity. You need to go and you need to have these clothes if you want to be suave and successful. You need to, uh, Matthew McConaughey, I hate his commercials. I hate those dumb commercials. Because it's like, hey, if you want to be suave and cool and have an accent like me, then you need to drive this car. Listen, it doesn't matter what car I drive. I'm not going to be as good looking and as suave as he is. It just isn't going to work for me. (laughs) Listen, as a Christian, you don't work for your identity. You work from your identity. Your identity is received. You know what that means? That means that God loves you. And if, and if it's true that God loves you, then you and I, we're free to just to love the people around us. We don't have to try and have a need to manipulate the people to love us so that we experience love. Because that love is already given to us by God. See how that works? Like, like, like if God cares for us, if God generally cares for us, then listen, we don't desperately need all these other people to be there for us. Because God is there for us. And when people fail us, we can forgive them because we're not looking for them to fulfill our our longings. God is there to fulfill it. The identity of a child of God, that when we sin, when we screw up, that's not the end of the world because God forgives. God changes people. And that should give us hope. You know what happens when our identity is tied to what we do? If your identity is tied to what you do, what happens when things begin to fail? Right? I mean, if your identity is all about what you do, what happens when you begin to struggle? I mean, think about this as parents. So many times our, our, our identity as a parent is tied to how our kids do. Man, my kids, they're on the honor roll. They're on the varsity team. They're doing so good. What happens when your kid falls off the deep end? You're lost. You're hopeless. You're a failure. Your identity is crushed because you couldn't make your kids turn out to be perfect and wonderful. What happens when your identity is tied to a relationship? You know what? One of the saddest things, one of the saddest things to watch 
as you watch people who move from one bad relationship to another, to another, to another. Because there's this longing inside of them, man, I, I, I need this relationship. That's going to complete me. That's my identity. And they move from one to the next to the next, and it's broken, and it's painful, and it's torture to watch. Because that identity is tied to a relationship, and when that relationship fails, they've got to pursue another one. You've seen this, right? You've seen this play out. What happens when your identity is tied to your beauty? What happens as you age? What happens when you start losing your hair, you start getting the wrinkles, you get the, the tire around your belly? Like, what happens then? I mean, sure, you could do like the Joan Rivers thing, you know, where it's like you're in a convertible going 90 miles an hour and your face is just sucked back. Look, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> That's good right there. So many of us, so many of us, our deepest root issue is tied to our identity. Tied to, we're like Esther, where we're kind of conflicted. We're, we're kind of have this thing with the people of God, and we're kind of on the world, and we're just conflicted where we don't understand who we really are. And this is what I want for us in this room. That, that like Esther, we would come to that firm foundation, that we would recognize that we have an identity that belongs, that, that we belong to God, that we are loved by God, that we have found favor in the sight of God. That we are forgiven by God. That we are helped by God. That we are loved by God. Because when we understand that, we understand that the deepest root of our identity is a child of God. It changes everything. It changes everything. Esther, the rest of the book, she's like a new person. She has this tremendous faith and courage. Then we're going to see her active and speaking and taking charge and taking risks. It's because her identity is centered in God. She's not searching for an identity somewhere. She's found her identity. She's able to flow and work out of that identity. Listen, what is your identity? Not your theological Sunday school answer. Oh, I know I'm a child of God. What is your practical identity? What is it you take your pride from? What is it that brings you to the lowest of days? What do you root your identity really in? So I want to compare that with, I want to compare Esther and Haman. You see Esther, her identity has now become a child of God, and you see a change in her in chapter 5. Look at Haman, verse 9. It says, he went out joyful, leaves, the, leaves the, the, the fiesta, leaves the party, and he's joyful and he's glad, he's excited. I mean, of course, like he loves power and recognition. And he's joyful, look, I've made it, look how important I am. Look how successful, I'm Haman the Great. I just had dinner with the king and the queen. And he leaves the party, and he, and he sees Mordecai sitting at the gate. And Mordecai doesn't rise. Mordecai doesn't bow. He says, Haman is filled with wrath. I just, I got to ask about Mordecai. Like, Mordecai, you refused to bow before Haman before. And now there's a death sentence of 15, like, like Mordecai, maybe now's the time to start bowing, right? Like I don't, I don't know, I don't know if he's being uh, right and courageous or if he's being uh, uh, wrong and stupid. Like sometimes it's a fine line between the two. But Mordecai's not bowing again. And Haman is filled with wrath. Verse 10 says that nevertheless, Haman can, can restrain his rage. 
He went home, he calls his friends over, he calls his wife over, and what does he do? No, they don't come over to play games. They come over so Haman can recount his greatness. Listen, everybody, here's how important I am. Here's how rich I am. Look, I'm so close to the king and queen. Like, like you are so lucky to know me because of how great I am. I mean, think about this. Who is it you admire? And when you, when you think about that, who, you know, you have that icebreaker question. I love doing those icebreaker questions. You know, if you could have lunch with one person, who would it be? I mean, maybe for you it's like a rock star, an athlete, a politician. I don't know whoever it's going to be. Uh, LeBron James, Jeff Bezos, Donald Trump, whoever, whoever you could have lunch with. For Haman, Xerxes is on, is on his bucket list. And he just had it come to fruition. Here's his day. He's the second most powerful man in the world in that day. He's very rich. He, the king is his friend. And in fact, the king's wife, Esther, she likes, appears to like him too. And he gets to go and he eats, eats with dinner with them. He does whatever he wants. He even has some friends and a wife. Like, like, his life is pretty good. Can we say, can we agree on that? His life is pretty good. But then there's that one thing that's not good. There's that one guy who's really not very important. He's really not a high official. He's not that big of a deal. His name's Mordecai. And Mordecai refuses to bow. And notice how that ruins everything for Haman. I mean, are you that person? Are you that person? Where everything good, everything is happening just good and great, and everything looks good, except there's that one thing. There's that one thing that's not, and that one thing throws you off into a tizzy. Is that you? Like you obsess over the one thing that is wrong? We have this tendency where we get so nearsighted over this one little thing that we miss everything else out being good. In fact, the Song of Solomon talks about uh, it's the little foxes that destroy the vineyard. I think sometimes that happens in relationships, where there's all this good stuff, but we've, we narrow in on this one little small bad thing, and we miss out on all the rest of it. So the issue for Mordecai, or excuse me, the issue for Haman, the issue is not Mordecai. The issue is that his identity is rooted in something other than God. Haman, it's all about respect and honor and recognition. And Mordecai is actually the one who just exposes where Haman's identity is. So Haman's wife says, here's what we're going to do. Let's build a gallows. 75 feet tall. That's a huge number. That is, that is, that is, that is huge. He says, let's go. Let's build this gallows. Let's hang, let's hang Mordecai on it. And then you can go about your day in peace. And you can go have dinner with the king and the queen and everything. And you'll be happy. Again, the gallows, uh, that means there was a big pole. And that they would uh, impale Mordecai on that pole. He wants to, uh, Haman wants to crucify Mordecai in a very public way. He wants everybody to see it. And so it's a big spectacle for everyone to see. When you look in this story of chapter 5, when you look at Haman and Esther, which one of them has peace? Which one of them is at peace with where they are? Because peace comes from an identity. Peace comes from knowing who you are, knowing where you stand, knowing what you are about. Haman's identity is tied to power and recognition and, and respect. I mean, he calls himself a, a leader, but really he's an idolater. You know what idolatry is? Idolatry is when we take anything other than God and we make them ultimate. 
That is what idolatry is. When we take anything other than God, listen, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be a good thing. We make them ultimate. For example, the Bible, the Bible talks about uh, 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 honor. The Bible's not against honor. The Bible talks about honor. It says, children, honor your parents. Church members, honor your elders. Citizens, honor the officials of the kingdom. But what happens is we can take honor or whatever it is, and we can, we can make it our identity. We can make it ultimate. We can worship that thing. And that leads to idolatry. That leads to a miserable life. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, uh, an old dead guy, he said, listen, if you idolize, you also demonize. If you idolize, you demonize. You see this play out in Haman's life. He idolizes honor. And because he idolizes honor, he's going to demonize Mordecai, who refused to honor him. Because he idolized public recognition, he demonizes Mordecai, who refuses to publicly recognize him. Listen, what is it in your life that you idolize? And what is it in your life that you begin to demonize? Because what happens is we idolize our nation. If we idolize our nation, what naturally happens is we begin to demonize other nations. If we idolize our income, then what happens is we're going to demonize anything that is going to affect our bottom line, that's going to take away from our income and our wealth and our success. If we idolize love, then we will demonize anything that begins to make us feel unloved or makes our love in jeopardy. And here's Haman. Man, when his idol is being fed, he's happy. But the moment his idol is threatened, he turns violent. Because what happens is, is when uh, we will violently defend our idols. We will violently defend our idols. This is why some of us in this room today, we're going to push back on this idea of identity. Because we're going to defend our little idol. Because we love our idol. We like the way our idol feels. We like, the way, we, we like the way it makes us look. And we'll do everything we can to defend it. You know what Christianity does? Christianity comes along and says, listen, we want to reset your identity. We want to remove the idolatry in your life. Restoration Church, I love this place. I love the people that are here. I love the fact that I get to come and I get to teach the Bible. And what I so desperately want you to hear today is I want you to see the difference between Esther and Haman. And I want you to consider where is your identity? I want you to, to consider today what is your idolatry? Where have you staked your identity? Think about it this way. What gets you emotional? You want to know what your idolatry is? What gets you emotional? What makes you overjoyed? What makes you angry and depressed? What makes you happy and what makes you frustrated? What are you afraid of losing? Who are you afraid of losing where are you afraid of failing? Because chances are that's going to lead you to identifying an area of idolatry. Because if our identity is wrong, if we have idolatry in our life, there's two ways to respond. 
The first way is we can be like Haman and we can do nothing. And we're going to see in the coming weeks, Haman's life is going to end miserably and tragically and very publicly. Because what happens is idolatry, you know what idolatry does? It, it, it promises uh, peaceful existence. It promises heaven, but it's a liar. Idolatry will always lie to you. It promises the world, and it gives you nothing but death. That idolatry, that wrong identity in your life, if you do nothing, the potential is we end up like Haman. We have another choice. We can be like Esther. And we can allow Christ to come in. We can allow God to redeem our identity, to establish our identity as a son and a daughter of God. Esther, she's not going to have a perfect life. She's going to have a good life, though. She's not going to be consumed with herself. She's going to sacrifice herself for others. And this interesting twist in this book, Haman wants to take everybody else's life, and he ends up losing his own. And Esther, she's willing to, to lose her life. And God allows her life to be spared. Listen, Restoration Church, where is your identity? I so desperately want you to hear that your identity is rooted in what Christ has done for you. Your identity is rooted as you being a child of God. Listen, for some of you, this is a defining moment today. This is a defining moment. Too long you've been like Esther, where you're kind of over here with the people of God, and you're kind of over here in the world. Today's a defining moment for you to say, I'm going to plant my feet with the people of God. I'm going to allow my identity to be shaped by what God has said about me. As a child of God, that I am loved, that I am forgiven, that I am redeemed. You have a choice to make today. Where will your identity come from? And you're going to have a choice to make in, in half an hour when you leave this building. Where will your identity come from? You're going to have a choice to make tomorrow morning when you wake up and get out of bed. Where will your identity come from? That we make the choice. My identity comes from God. My identity is received from what he's done, not because of what I do. My desire is that every one of us in here today would know our identity, that we'd be able to stand up and sing this song. I am a child of God. Whenever we sing that song, it just sends chills down my spine. That's not a question. That's not a, I hope. I am a child of God. That is my identity. That is who I am. And everything I do is based out of that. Let's pray.